So Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, reading to verse 30, again with a focus on verses 26 through 30. So Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, just a little recap of what we looked at last week in verses 18 through 25. Uh, We looked at a passage of scripture that promises our future glory. And it did this by contrasting the suffering that we face in this present age with the glory that is to be revealed in the age to come. And Paul says that that the suffering that we face in this life is not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us when Christ returns. And we noted the reality of present suffering in the Christian life. Not that we should always be in a state of misery and suffering. And not that there shouldn't be moments in life uh, of happiness and joy. But rather, we should think of ourselves as pilgrims, as people who do not belong in this world, as strangers in a strange land, to borrow a title from a Robert Heinlein book, and as resident aliens awaiting our heavenly citizenship. And because of that, then we groan, Paul says. We groan in this life because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And they will never quite be right for us in this lifetime. And that was a motif we saw through this passage here, the the groaning, this groaning, that the creation groans. The creation groans waiting for us for the, the revelation of the sons of God, waiting for our redemption, waiting for our adoption to become fully manifest in all of its fullness. Creation groans because of Adam's sin. And because of Adam's sin, it was subjected to a state of futility so that the creation does not work the way it was originally designed to work. Moreover, we groan. We who live in a fallen world filled with fallen people, we groan because we have what Paul says, the first fruits. We have a taste 
of the age to come in us with the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we groan because we know that we are not the way we're supposed to be as well, right? Now, one could look at the world and the people in the world uh, gives us all the evidence we need to verify this, that we live in a fallen world with fallen people. Now, saying this doesn't nullify the many good things that we do see in the world, uh, many good things that people do for one another, or the beauty that we could still see in creation. But we know that this much of this is due to what we call common grace, God's common grace by which through his working, through his providence, through his gracious love for all mankind, he, he restrains the limits of our sinfulness. He restrains the effects of the fall so that they are not as bad as they could be and that we could still enjoy some beauty in, even in this fallen creation. So now as we continue our journey through Romans 8, we're going to continue to see here, though, how the Holy Spirit ministers to us. Because, again, Romans 8 is a chapter that really focuses on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And in the last chapter, we, or in the last section, we saw how the Holy Spirit um, dwells within us, how the Holy Spirit uh, adopts us. We have the spirit of adoption. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. And as such, we groan. And here we're going to see even more how the Holy Spirit ministers to us. And everything we saw last week regarding future glory is going to climax right here in this section of verses 26 through 30. And the passage here that we're going to look at begins with some very explicit teaching on how the Holy Spirit helps us during our wandering through this veil of tears. We're going to see how the Holy Spirit helps us in this life through his intercessory work, how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us as we learn with groanings that are too deep for words. And we're also going to see how the Holy Spirit helps us to move from suffering to glory as he preserves us firm in our faith through his preser- uh, preservational work. So looking first at verses 26 and 27, we see that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. Notice how verse 26 opens. Where Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, if you remember when we looked at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8, we saw that the law was weakened because of the flesh or was weakened by the flesh. In other words, we in ourselves could not perform the righteousness that God requires in his law because due to the fall, we are weak. So the law could not make us righteous. Okay. You know, the law, we could not be righteous by observing the law because our flesh is weak. We could not generate the necessary righteousness we need to stand before God. So God had to do it himself by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to live a perfect life according to the law. We also saw that because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we who are in Christ now have been given life to our mortal bodies. The Spirit gives life now to our mortal bodies, meaning that our bodies were weak, they were dead, they were lifeless. Now the Spirit indwells us and then starts to provide spiritual life now to our bodies so that we can actually start doing what we are required to do. So we spent a lot of time in previous lessons uh, talking about our weakness, talking about our infirmity, talking about our inability, all because we are in the flesh. 
We are in the flesh. We are in a fallen humanity. So here we see that the Spirit, though, in our weakness, helps us. And the applications of this go well beyond what we see here in this passage. But the Spirit here helps and assists, and He comes to our aid. He helps us in our weakness. Now, as it pertains to this passage in particular, the Spirit intercedes for us. Because of our weakness, the Spirit has to be an intercessor. He has to be one who stands between us and God and intercedes for us on our behalf. Again, verse 26, for we do not know, the last half of that verse, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now here the particular weakness that Paul refers to is our weakness in prayer. Now, have you ever felt the weight of Paul's words here? Have you ever felt just kind of like your prayers feel weak? Like you don't know often what to pray for? That you, you, you say words and you're not even sure if what you're saying is right or, or according to God's will? Again, Paul says, where we do not know what we pray, how to pray as we ought. Prayer is what helps us as we experience the sufferings of this present age, waiting for the glory that is to be revealed. Prayer is our lifeline to God. But the truth of the matter is we often don't know how to pray as we ought to do. Our prayers can be weak. Our prayers can sometimes become rote. You say the same things over and over again. Our prayers can be ill-informed. You're praying for something you just don't quite know the full extent of how you ought to pray for a certain situation. Sometimes even our prayers can be selfish, right? You pray for, (laughs) help me out of this situation, or if you help me through this, or if you do this for me, God, kind of a thing. We often don't know how to pray properly for our own needs, let alone the needs of others. That's what James says in James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your own passions. The reality is our trouble in prayer is in part because we're finite creatures, right? We don't know God's will for all things. So someone is going through a particular situation in their life and they're seeking God's will and they say, I want to, you know, I want to do this. So you're like, okay, well then I'm going to pray for this, but that may not be God's will for that person. And you don't know that. So your, your prayers, because we are finite, we don't know God's plan for all things, often fall very short in our lives. And that's why the Spirit here intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the good news is that even though we rarely know how we ought to pray, the Spirit steps in and he intercedes for us. He prays on our behalf. This is, of course, no excuse to not get better at prayer. You don't have to say, now I'm going to sit back and I don't need to pray anymore because I know the Spirit is going to pray for me. He's just going to do all the work for me. You know, kind of like, you know, the Carrie Underwood song, Jesus, take the wheel. Go ahead, Spirit, just take the prayer. I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to let you do all the work. That's not an excuse to be weak or not to try to improve in our prayer life. But it is comforting, right? It is comforting to know that the Holy Spirit provides the vital ministry and this vital ministry in the lives of believers. 
Now, this intercession, which is which the spirit does on our behalf, is very similar uh, to the work of an advocate. Okay, an advocate, like a, in a legal sense, like a lawyer, someone who, who stands in your place, who speaks for you, who defends you in a court of law. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And that word helper in Greek is parakletos, which means one who comes alongside of, one who supports another one, comes alongside to help and support you. Now, Jesus is said in 1 John 2, 1, to be the true advocate. He is our advocate. But the Holy Spirit is the other helper, the other advocate, the one that he sends as he goes up into heaven, the Holy Spirit is sent then to dwell within us, and he is another helper. He is another advocate who stands in for us and intercedes for us. In fact, the Bible speaks on several occasions of praying in the Spirit, the idea of praying in the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18, where Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Or in the book of Jude, which is only one chapter, so verse 20 in the book of Jude, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. So this idea of praying in the Spirit or praying in the Holy Spirit is this sense of praying according to God's will as it is revealed in his word. Now notice here, too, that the Spirit's intercession is with groanings too deep for words. Of course, this is an obvious reference to what we saw in the last passage, where creation groans, we groan, and even the Holy Spirit himself is groaning for us. Now this kind of shows to me sort of like the empathy of the Spirit. He groans for us. He knows that we are not the way we're supposed to be. He knows that we are fallen, weak, and frail, and that we don't know how to pray because we don't know God's will, and we kind of pray like we're in the dark often. So he groans with us. This idea of groaning, this idea of just sighing and, 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 and wanting the best for us. It kind of reminds me of the story of Jesus with Martha and Mary when their brother Lazarus died and they were they were distraught and they were they were depressed and they were mourning the loss of their brother and what does Jesus do? So the shortest verse in the Bible, what is what does Jesus do? He weeps. Now are these like fake tears? Are these crocodile tears? Is he just kind of crying to to you know, oh, they're crying. I, okay, turn on the waterworks and crying. You know, is this like a Bill Clinton, I feel your pain kind of tears? Or is this real crying? I think it's real empathy. God, even though Jesus knows what he's going to do, even though he knows he's going to raise their brother from the dead, he still weeps over the, the state of affairs that had to happen to bring him to this place. The fact that the curse brings death into the world and that people die. God cares for us. He empathizes with us. He weeps with us when we weep. And here the Spirit, as we groan, the Spirit is groaning for us. He groans with us. He groans 
with words that are inexpressible. Well, in verse 27, we see how then the Spirit intercedes for us, where we see, and he searches the hearts, uh, and he who searches the hearts, that's God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, God searches the hearts. This is kind of reminiscent of what you read in 1 Samuel 16, when um, Saul has sort of been kicked out of being king. You know, God has taken the kingdom away from him, and he's given it to David, and he, he charges Samuel, the, the, the prophet or the judge, to go and anoint the future king. And he says he's from the sons of Jesse. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he's there and all of Jesse's sons are paraded before him. And he looks at the first one and says, well, surely the Lord's anointed is here before me. And God says, nope, not that one. And then he goes to number two, number three, goes all the way down the line. It's like, well, one of these is going to be the, I mean, they all look the part. And God says, do not look at outward appearances. You know, God does not look at outward appearances. God searches the heart. He wants heart worship. He wants people who love him. He wants people who have the right heart. So God searches hearts. He knows what we need. He knows what we think before we need it or think it. And if the Father knows our hearts, don't you think he also knows what is in the mind of the Spirit? It's his Holy Spirit. They, they are one. They are triune. They share the mind. They share the thoughts. All of, it's not like they're at odds with one another. The Father knows instinctively and intuitively what the, is the mind of the Spirit. And so that means that there will never be a dispute or disagreement between the Father and the Holy Spirit. So when the Spirit intercedes for us, the Father knows the mind of the Spirit and intuitively and instinctively agrees with the Spirit. And the reason is because the Spirit intercedes for us when he does, he does so perfectly according to the will of God, because he is God, the Holy Spirit. So you know what that means. That means as we suffer in this life, as we struggle how to pray, because we so often cannot see the forest for the trees, the Spirit groaning on our behalf perfectly intercedes for us. He prays for us in a way that we could never pray for ourselves because he knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and he prays exactly according to the will of God. It's sort of like if you are, you know, we've got this unbridgeable gap between humanity and God, and the Spirit just fills that gap so that whatever we perfectly need, the Spirit will communicate that to the Father. And we could take solace because the Father always answers the Spirit's groans for us. Well, now we move on to verse 28, where all things work together for good. As we come to this, we're coming to probably one of the most loved and well-known verses. How many people have this sort of like as as a memory verse of many memory verses? Romans 8, 28, right? I mean, there's... This probably would be on the Mount Rushmore of four verses. If you had to pick four, this would be one of them. John 3.16 would be another. But Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is a beautiful verse, no doubt about it, right? I mean, this is a glorious, comforting truth. 
But we often, when we cite it, we often cite it in a vacuum. Okay, we kind of pull it out and just say, well, God will work all things according to you, for you according to good. Okay, you know, but we don't take it into the context here of what it's being said in Romans 8. We often use it as a sort of like a salve or a bromide when people are hurting or suffering. Don't worry, God will work this for good. Stop suffering. Stop mourning. Stop crying. You should be joyful. God is going to take this pain in your life and turn it to good. Why are you being like that? <laughs> we can kind of use it callously, right? You know, people are suffering because they've lost a loved one, or people are suffering because they lost a job, or people are suffering because of just what's going on in the world. Say, don't worry. God is going to turn that to good. So stop it. That's bad. Okay. Just going to say, that's bad. Don't use that verse that way. It's not a cudgel to, to beat someone to be joyful when they're sad, okay? You never want to use this verse as a means to silence someone who is going through a devastating life situation or circumstance. As in, don't be sad. God will turn your pain into joy. But be that as it may, this verse is a passage that does, is in a passage, I should say, that begins by talking about our suffering and ends with our glorification. Verse 18 talks about how we consider, we do not consider the suffering of this present time worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. And at the end, we see that God does glorify us. And this verse is in the middle of that passage. So our current suffering is not worth comparing with our future glory, a glory that all creation longs to see revealed, a glory that we too groan to see consummated. This is our hope. And in this hope, as Paul says in this passage, in this hope we are saved. And even the Holy Spirit groans and intercedes for us according to the will of God. So with all of that as a backdrop, the fact that we are being carried from suffering to glory, how can all things not work for our good? How can God not work all things together for our good, right? This is the central teaching of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. God is providentially in control of all things. He governs all things. He upholds and governs his creation. He takes our tragedies and turns them into triumphs. Now, if I had to pick one classic Old Testament story to illustrate this point, where do you think I would go to? What would be a, gla- a classic Old Testament story that shows tragedy being turned into triumph? Joseph, Joseph exactly. Joseph, the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50. Joseph, of course, was Jacob's favorite son, born of his favorite wife, Rachel, the firstborn of his favorite wife, Rachel. As such, Joseph's favorite status was clearly evident, right? Jacob favored him. Jacob uh, shielded him. Jacob did everything for him. Jacob gave him the coat of many colors. You know, and, Jake, you know, and Joseph was spoiled, right? He was a spoiled brat in a way, you know, early on. And Jacob's other sons, or at least his ten older brothers, Joseph's ten older brothers, out of jealousy, they wanted to kill him. But then they change their mind later and they say, well, let's just sell him into slavery, which is what they do. So Joseph then ends up in Potiphar's house in Egypt. Potiphar, of course, being the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Well, then Mrs. Potiphar, we don't know what her name is. I'm just going to call her Mrs. Potiphar. Mrs. Potiphar takes a liking to Joseph. 
because he's ruddy, he's handsome, he's got a good form, and she takes a liking to him, and she pursues him, and she tries to seduce him over and over again. And Joseph, over and over again, rejects her advances to the point where, as Shakespeare said, hell hath no fury as a woman scorned. So Mrs. Potiphar then frames him for rape, and then Joseph is then thrown into prison. And while in prison, Joseph then gains a reputation for being a dream interpreter as he interprets the dreams of the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker while he's in the prison there. And then just so happens, right, just so happens, by coincidence, Pharaoh has two dreams that he cannot interpret. He's perplexed by these dreams. And then finally, someone said, well, there's someone in jail who can interpret dreams. Well, Pharaoh said, well, bring him in. I've got a couple of dreams that I need interpreting. I'm having a problem with them. So then Joseph interprets the dreams. And so thankful is Pharaoh that he elevates Joseph to the position of his chancellor, his second in command. No one is more powerful in Egypt except Pharaoh, but Joseph. And he elevates him to chancellor just in time to save the region from a very prolonged famine. So at the end of this episode, when Joseph is reunited with his brothers, he utters words that everyone knows, right? In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where he tells his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So this evil that happens in Joseph's life, perpetrated by his brothers, perpetrated by Mrs. Potiphar, the forgetfulness of the the butcher who forgot that he could interpret dreams and left Joseph languishing in prison for two more years. All of that evil that was against Joseph was turned by God to good. God meant it for good. This was fulfilling God's purposes in redemptive history. He turned all that evil in Joseph's life to good, and not just for him, and not just for his family, but for the whole world. Because if Joseph, you know, R.C. Sproul is famous for this, if Joseph doesn't make it to Egypt, then you don't have, the, the, you don't have Moses, you don't have the Exodus, you don't have the law, you don't have Jesus, right? All because of a technicolor dream coat, right? So the point is, is that God was sovereignly orchestrating events in Joseph's life to prepare the world for Messiah, The life of Jesus also is the ultimate illustration of Romans 8, 28. What is the greatest evil ever perpetrated by mankind? The crucifixion, exactly. The murder of God's only begotten son. This is a crime of epic, cosmic proportions. Yet, second favorite word in the Bible, yet, God turned this greatest of all evil acts into the greatest of all goods. Because through this singularly evil act, God was able to save the world. And so here we are back at Romans 8.28. And the way this verse is structured, where you see those who love God, and at the end you see those who are called according to his purposes, those are the same group of people. Those who love God are those who are called according to his purpose. So we love God because we have been called by God. We have been invited. This is, this is called not in a general sense. This is called in the spirit uh, irresistibly calling us and bringing us into the faith. We are the ones whom the spirit caused to be born again 
We're going to look at this a little more closely as we look at verses 29 to 30. But the heart of this verse here, the heart of verse uh, 28 is the phrase, all things work together for good. Now, you may have uh, a, a footnote on that verse because there might be some uh, differential manuscript readings. Some early manuscripts read that says God works all things together for good. Either way, whether it's all things work together for good, they don't do that on their own. Right. They do so because God is working all things together for good. God is sovereign and is the one who ordains all things that come to pass. Not just the ends. So God doesn't just ordain the results, but God ordains the means that we get to those results. So God ordains the ends. He ordains the means. And that phrase works together is one word in the Greek, synergeo, which is the same word from which we get like synergy or synergism and a working together. In other words, however things may look, or however things may appear to the eyes of the world, they are in fact being worked together by God for good. Again, think of the story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers had one plan. God had another plan. And both met at the same end. So they wanted evil. God wanted good. And guess which one wins the day? <laughs> it is God's plan for, for good. Now, the good in verse 28 ultimately is not our earthly or temporal good. So we shouldn't think of this verse to think that when God says or when Paul says God works all things together for our good means that we're going to have our best life now. Okay, this is not a Joel Osteen book. Life is not, you know, we're not promised our best life in this in this age. It doesn't mean that God can't bless us abundantly in this life. And that for many of us, he has blessed abundantly in this life. But we should not read verse 28 as a promise of our best life now. The promise of God here for our good, ultimately working for our good, is for our ultimate good, which is glorification at the end of this chapter. Suffering to glory. And all things God is working together for our good, which is ultimately to get us to the end of that chain, which is glorification. And then finally, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit testifying to our spirits that we are God's children, the glorious truth of verse 28 is something Paul can say we can know. We can know this for certain because it is God's Holy Spirit working in us to bring us from suffering to glory. Now, finally, we look at verses 29 to 30 here from foreknowledge to glorification. So the reason we can know that God works all things for our good is because God has been working all things for our good since before we were born. This has been God's plan all along. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, I didn't read verse 30 yet, and I'll read it in a second, but. These two verses mark off what many have called the golden chain of salvation. And the reason is because in this verse, in these verses, we see a linking or a connecting or a chaining between foreknowledge and glorification. We've talked about, I've mentioned this phrase, it's a Latin phrase, the ordo salutis. It's a Latin phrase that just means order of salvation. Uh, and these verses here give us a sort of a biblical support of this idea 
of thinking of an order of salvation, that salvation is applied in a particular pattern from one thing to the next to the next. Now, all of it is salvation. All of it are benefits that we receive in Christ, and all of it are benefits that the Spirit then applies to us. But they, there's a logical progression from one to the next to the next. Even though as we look in these verses, there are certain key links, if you will, that are missing, like sanctification isn't mentioned, adoption isn't mentioned explicitly. But before we dig into those verses, uh, I want to notice one very important element. There are two phrases in these two verses that are repeated four times. So you see the those whom, and then you see he also. So those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So those whom, he also. And these two phrases form an unbreakable link between God's foreknowledge and our glorification. So you could put it another way. You can shorten this verse. You could say, those whom God foreknew, he also glorified. Because everyone that he foreknew will get predestined, will get called, will get justified, will get glorified. There's no loss along the way. That same group of people he foreknew is carried along, preserved by the Holy Spirit, all the way until glorification. Now, in verse 29, we also see two purposes for God's saving activity. The first is a purpose that we actually see in verse 28, where we see that uh, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that purpose is our predestination, which says we are predestined Paul says we are predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Now, you've probably heard me say this many times, maybe even pray this many times, that we are being conformed into the image of Christ. Now, Christ, as the author of Hebrews says, is the true imprint of God's nature. He is the, the word there is character. Okay, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. So if there is one who is truly in the image of God, it will be Jesus Christ. Now we are created in God's image as well. And then because of the fall, that image is marred. And now because of the work of the Holy Spirit and redemption, we are being then conformed. And the idea is we're being taken to look like the true image. We are fallen image. We are being conformed to look like the true image of God, which is Jesus Christ, conformed into the image of his son. The second purpose here of God's saving activity is that Christ then might be the firstborn among many brothers. And here again, we see that doctrine of adoption that we looked at a couple you know, last week and the week before. Again, Christ as the firstborn is the true son of God. He is the only true son of God. But we are by adoption. We are also children of God by the work of the spirit. And now to the concept of foreknowledge. Now, this idea of foreknowledge is, is so much more than just merely talking about God's omniscience, God's knowing of all things. Indeed, he does know all things. But the idea of foreknowledge is being used here in an intimate way. If you remember back in Genesis, how do they describe that Adam and Eve had sexual relations to form children? They say that Adam knew his wife, right? They use a euphemism. Adam knew his wife. 
The idea of foreknowledge or foreknowing carries that same kind of intimate concept. In Genesis 18, 19, um, God, who is uh, there in a theophany, he's in a human form. He is speaking uh, to the two angelic messengers as he is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, for I have chosen him, speaking of Abraham, that he may keep that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. So there God says, I have chosen him in a very specific and personal and intimate way. I have chosen Abraham. He could have chosen anybody, but he chose Abraham. Or the prophet Jeremiah, as he prophesies about his own um, call into the prophetic ministry, God says, before I formed you in the womb, speaking of Joshua, he says, I knew you. So Joshua, or Jeremiah, not Joshua, Jeremiah was not just some afterthought in God's plan. God specifically formed him in the womb. And before he was formed in the womb, God says, I knew you. And of course, in Hosea 13, 5, it was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. God speaking of Israel, his chosen people. I knew you. So this speaks of God's sovereign choice to elect a people to be in Christ from before the creation of the world. So before any of us were born, before even the worlds were created, God chose to place his love on us. So those whom he foreknew, those whom he knew beforehand, he then predestines. So God not only sets his electing love on us before the world was created, but he also gave us a destiny. He destined us to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And then as we get to verse 30, we see the rest of the chain. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So as we said, God not only ordains the ends, glorification, but he also ordains the means to those ends, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification. In other words, God foreknew, what God foreknew was the gospel. That was the means to achieve his goals, the gospel. The call spoken of here is that irresistible call of the Holy Spirit to the elect. So those whom God foreknew, then by the Spirit, he calls them. And it is a summons. This is an official summons, not like, you know, you send an invitation, you say, please RSVP if you're going to come. No, God comes and you are expected to come when he calls. The Spirit brings us in. The Spirit calls us in. And then the Holy Spirit then works in the elect, those whom he called the necessary faith to believe in Christ so that we are then justified. And then the end of that golden chain is glorification, which is when we fully will be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And then what makes this golden chain unbreakable is that it's all part of God's sovereign plan for those who have been chosen in Christ. And the Holy Spirit then is our guarantee. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. The Holy Spirit is the one who is preserving us firm on our faith, and applying all of these benefits to us in Christ. In fact, our pathway then from suffering to glory is a foregone conclusion. 
Because notice how the verses are worded here in this passage. Those whom I foreknew, past tense, I predestined, past tense, called, justified, glorified, all in the past tense. From God's perspective, it's already a done deal. And that's why we can take hope. That's why we can rest confidently in this hope that we will be taken from suffering to glory. Well, that's all I have for this morning. Uh, Next week, as I said, I plan to finish Romans 8, looking through uh, verses 31 to 39 as we consider God's everlasting love.